right. Well, we're going to start. So if you're still giving your offering, getting coffee, or raiding that bake sale, just make your way in as soon as possible. But we've got a goal. So we're doing a, talking about Easter was a couple of weeks ago, so we want to talk about resurrection power. What does this mean? Why is it important? Why does the resurrection, understand, why does the resurrection matter? And everybody say this with me. It's foundational. Okay? This is foundational. Do you guys want to learn your Bibles? I'm going to teach you your Bibles. All right? I feel like the Lord has been dealing with me to take it a little deeper on some of this stuff, so I'm going to do my best to do that to you, for you. So God created the world. This is what the Bible teaches us. These are foundational understandings of our faith. And without these foundational understandings, how many knows if the foundation is not correct, the house can't stand? Can we agree with that? If you don't get the foundation right, the house isn't going to last very long. Anybody who knows that, particularly here in Florida, you've got to get the foundation correct. And, you know, there's lots of places in the world that that has to, that has to be the correct. And so in order for God to build the house that he wants to build upon our lives, we have to understand the foundations. And one of the foundations is that you were created by God. You were created by a creator God. You were created in his image and likeness. Say it with me. I'm no accident. I was made on purpose with a purpose. God declares himself in the beginning, and the very first thing he says he is is he's a creator. God created. And so you were created by a creator. And what's the opposite of that? Well, what we try to do is we try to alienate God from our minds and from our culture and from all things. And so we come up with this great idea that we all come from monkeys, right? The orangutan is not your uncle, right? Yeah, that's not, that's not, you're not descended from, you know, monkeys swinging in trees. You didn't come from a primordial soup. You know, what happened? Well, there was just this primordial soup. Well, what's the primordial soup? You know what they'll tell you? We don't know, but we have faith that there was a primordial soup. And out of the primordial soup, some creature just magically appeared. Well, how did it appear? We don't know how that creature appeared, but we have faith that that creature appeared. From where did the creature come from? Well, we don't know, but we have faith that that creature appeared. Evolution requires more faith in the gospel, I can tell you that. And you're believing in nonsense as opposed to believing that you were created in the image and likeness of a loving God. That's the point. It's foundational to our faith. You were created in his image and likeness. Adam and Eve, they were created. When God created the earth, you have to understand how that mankind was created to understand what was lost in order to value what Jesus brought back to us. This is the idea. To value the resurrection is to understand how God created us, what was lost in the process, and what Jesus actually did. Then you can understand the fullness of what this is all about. Adam, God created Adam and Eve. He bore them. He created Adam from the earth. He created Eve from the side of the man. They were born of the Spirit. The Bible says when God created man, he breathed into Adam, and Adam became a life-giving spirit. He became alive. He's born of the Spirit. So while Adam was born of the earth, he was born of the Spirit. Adam was born for intimacy, closeness, relationship. The Bible says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden. What does that look like? I don't know, but it has to be pretty cool. Okay? It's got to be cool. I don't know what that looks like. They were born not just of the spirit. They were not just born for intimacy. They were born to create culture 
and to reflect the nature of God. This is the purpose of human, cre human creation. This is why God made you. He made you to, it, to live and interact from his spirit. He made you for intimacy, intimacy with him, intimacy with one another, intimacy ultimately with his spirit. This is why. And you were born to do something. What were you born to do? You, because you're made by your creator, were born to create. Create what? Create culture. Well, what kind of culture? I'm glad you asked. Kingdom culture, right? The culture of heaven. This is what we were born to do on earth as it is in heaven. That's what God told Adam to do. What you see as above, so beneath. That's what he told Moses. What you see above, do that beneath. Jesus said his words made it more clearly. On earth as it is in heaven. That was the original design. That was the original intent. That's been the God's process all the way through. So what does that look like? So what, is it born, what am I born to create? Well, what's in heaven that's not on the earth? And what matters to you, right? Does poverty matter to you? You say, man, I just really have a burden for these people who live in poverty. Well, I can assure you there's no poverty in heaven. So one of the ways that you create culture is you begin, to trans you, you begin to seek the Lord and begin some sort of transformative process to begin to alleviate or solve some of the issues of poverty. I tell Christians this all the time. That's our problem to solve. That's not the government's. Whoa, that puts a lot of pressure on us. Well, we have the spirit, right? We're not the Kiwanis Club, people. We're not the Moose Lodge. We have the kingdom power. We have the power of the Spirit. What matters to you? Does what, whatever matters to you, and we relate from heaven to earth. You know, what is kindness, love, compassion, generosity, hope, renewal, restoration? All of those things are what we are designed to create. And each one of you are going to want to create something that maybe the other person isn't really wired to do. So we were born to do that. So it's important that you understand why God made man. It's important because if you can understand why he made man, you can understand why he made you. And you can understand why Jesus did what he did. He did what he did to take man back to his original point of creation, to reestablish man back to the original point. That's the idea. Adam is considered a federal head. This is a theological term. What does it mean? It means that Adam was the first created, and so everything flows from Adam. If you study theology or you study Bible, this is a term that they throw around, Adam's the federal head. And so we inherit as a, as a species everything from Adam. From him, the whole human race flows. So we are all genetically linked to Adam. There's one race, it's a human race. That's it. That's the point. That's what the Bible teaches. There's different ethnoses, which means ethnicities, which means nationalities, which means differences. We have different ethnicities, but we are all one common race. We are the human race. So we are born of Adam genetically, and we are born of Adam spiritually. So when Adam left the reservation and denied God and pushed God away, we, by nature, inherited that because the Bible teaches that we were in Adam before we were born just as your future generations are in you before they were born, and you are in your ancestors' generation, in them before you were born. You understand the concept? All of the humanity was in Adam before the human race came into flourishing. And so when Adam sinned and inherited sin, we, by nature, because we were born of Adam, inherited his sin nature. You understand that? Okay, next slide, please. So I'm going to read for you. This is 1 Corinthians. I don't know how much time I have. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. What's that? What else is new, Kevin? All right. So we're going to go for this. You guys want to go for it? 
You want to go for it? Say, put your foot on the gas. Let's do it. All right, so I want to give you a little bit of background on Corinth, and I'll try to give you a little bit because it helps you connect to the book. Um, the Corinthian church, this is a pluralistic society. In, in other words, what it meant was this city of Corinth had a lot of worldviews. Everybody had an opinion in the city of Corinth. Every, oh, I think this, and I think that, and I think this, and I think that. It was a cosmopolitan area. So they had worldviews coming into the city from all over the world. Corinth, at the time of the gospel, was probably third as far as a city of influence in the world. The first probably would be Rome, but Athens would be the second, and then the third would be uh, Corinth. So Corinth was a pretty important city in the ancient world. And some would even argue that Rome was actually a byproduct of Athens because most of what the Romans did, they their, all the education, everything came out of Athens. That's a whole other story. So Corinth is a city that's very cosmopolitan, and the gospel comes into this city. When Paul comes into the city and the Holy Spirit comes into this city, no other city in the whole New Testament was lit up with the Holy Spirit like Corinth. Corinth, man, it was like, woo! They're like gifts of the Spirit. They're like, yes, please, right? Prophecy? Yes, please. Speaking in tongues? Yes, please. Healing ministry? Yes, please. Power of the Spirit? We want it all. Nobody was like them. But what they were operating with, and this is what you read in the book of Corinthians, and so Paul's correcting them on some things, is that they would take the things of the Spirit, and they were not basing them in maturity. And so they were called Christians gone wild, right? It was constantly a party, and everybody was just, it was just all over the place. And there was no structure or order to the things that they were doing. And they were going, it's just the Spirit, and just blasting it all over the place. And Paul said, the Spirit with decency and order. That's what he said. And if you're going to prophesy one in turn, not everybody at the same time, you know, and if you're going to speak in tongues, don't do it in the assembly unless there's a gift of interpretation because everybody else is going to look at you like you're weird. Hello. Okay. That's what he says. And he defines what tongues are. It's an interpersonal prayer language. He didn't forbid the speaking in tongues, but he said, if you're going to stand up and give a word in tongues and you're not going to get an interpretation, don't do it. That's what he said. So this, he puts the gifts in context. And I tell people who want to deny the spiritual gifts, Paul never took away from the spiritual gifts. He simply structured them in the way that they were supposed to be structured. That's all he did. He didn't tell them not to. He said, you're doing it wrong. And so this church had a lot of immaturities attached to it. There's a lot of things that were going on with this church, and they were very immature. And one of the things that's happening here is that now these people are lit up with the Spirit, and so there's all of this teaching coming into the church, kind of like what we talked about last week. They're teaching the Christians things that are not in line with what God wants. And so I'm going to read it for you. And one of the arguments here was that there's no resurrection. And so these teachers were coming in, known as Gnostics, and they were saying, well, there's no afterlife. There's no resurrection. You can receive Christ and be saved in this natural world, and you can have all of the natural experiences of Jesus in this world, but there's no resurrection. There's no life after death. And so Paul goes into this. This is what he's going to say here, and I'm going to relate it back to something, hopefully, that connects you deeper into what it is that I'm actually trying to say. He says, Moreover, brethren, I come to you to declare the gospel which I preach to you. So Paul's like, I come to you, and I come to declare to you which I've told you. This thing that I've told you from the beginning, you need to stand in it. This gospel that I taught you is what saves you. You must hold fast. In other words, embrace it, get into it, hold on to it, unless you believed in vain. Unless you're, what he's saying is, unless you take this gospel into your heart, it doesn't save you. 
because he's talking about if you believe and you only believe from the point of vanity, you only believe because everybody else is believing and you just want to be part of the crowd, he's saying your, your, your faith is empty. You have to believe and it must be embraced and you must own this Jesus. I delivered to you, first of all, which I received, that Christ died for sins. That's the first order of business, according to the scriptures. Watch how many times he says according to the scriptures. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not making this up. Everything I'm telling you was done exactly in line with the word of God. This isn't me coming up with some teaching and me coming up with some idea. What I'm telling you has been foretold through the scripture. So Paul's valuing the, the Bible very highly. He says, Jesus Christ was raised according to the scripture. He was, he was buried. He rose again, again, according to the scripture. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen at 500 at the same time, of whom the greater part remain to this day. What he's saying is, is, if you don't believe Jesus was raised, go to Jerusalem because there's 500 people that are still alive that actually saw him risen from the dead. So this is the idea. But some have fallen in. He says, so after that, he was seen by 500 at once, and the greater part are present today, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, they've died. Afterwards, he was seen by James and the apostles. The last of all, he was seen by me who was born out of due time. What is he saying here? He said, I was out of sync. I was out of time with the very thing that God had created me to do, but Jesus brought me into time. This is what happens when you receive Christ. Without Jesus, you are out of time and out of sync with how you were created and why you were created. When you receive Jesus, you come back into sync and back into time that he has created you. I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called apostle because I persecuted the church. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. He says, I work more than all of these apostles. What was going on in this church is there were these super teachers. They called them, Paul references them as super teachers, and they came in with the shish, boom, ba, and all the glam and the glitz and everything, and they came in with this over-the-top presentation, and they would teach the people things that were not in line with the Bible. And then they would say, and they would say well, Paul taught us this. And he would, they would all go, well, who's Paul? Paul's this lowly guy. Paul's this guy. What does he know? He doesn't know anything. We know what's true. And that's why you get Paul saying, I might be a short guy. Because they said, oh, he's just this little short guy. He's like, I may be lowly in stature, but I am mighty in spirit. And then he tells the Corinthians, if you think they preach to you the gospel, then tell them to demonstrate power. And he says, if they cannot demonstrate power, then their gospel is not true. Oh, how we should mark that in our generation. Oh, how we should mark that. If we cannot demonstrate power, then Jesus has given us a message and a method that he guarantees he will validate. He is guaranteed to validate the, mes the message. He doesn't, he doesn't blink. He doesn't tell us to go and do things that he himself is not willing to back it up. He said, write the check, I'll cash it. The money will be there. Therefore, whether it was I or whether we preached to you, the believe the risen Christ, our hope. So the gospel was being preached to them at the resurrection. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? In other words, if all of these things are true, then how is it that you're saying that there's no resurrection? Because this is what was going on. This was the conversation. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus isn't risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. In other words, if there's no resurrection, then we're all just, we're, we're just, we got nothing here. We found fault, we are, and, and I'm a false witness of God because I've testified that he was risen from the dead as he was not raised up in the fact that he, in fact, if in fact the dead do not rise. In other words, I'm a false teacher if this isn't true. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. 
But if you, and you are still in your sins, well, that's, that's a bad place to be. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, those who have died in faith are, are, are lost. If in this life all we have is hope in Christ, then we are by far the most pitiful people. In other words, if all we have is, is we have faith in Jesus and this world is all there is, he's saying that's a pretty pitiful existence. Right? I mean, that's pretty, it's not like Christ in this life doesn't benefit, but our hope is in the everlasting. Our hope is in the world to come. Next slide, please. This is where I want to go. But now Christ has risen from the dead. He has risen. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man came the resurrection from the dead. And here's what Jesus did. So I took you to Adam, and I want to show you what happened in Adam, and now I want to show you what's going to happen in Jesus. For even as in Adam all died, so all of us inherited our sin nature from Adam. We have a common ancestry. All of us, common ancestry, period. We all sinners, all born in sin. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, and afterwards those who have risen in Christ that is coming. Does this mean, here again, is Adam is the federal head. Adam was created on purpose for a family, for a mission. What happens with Adam, our, our, our ancestor, our forefather, is that he fell. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the last Adam. What does that mean? Adam failed. Adam did not succeed in the thing that he was told to do. So he failed, and his failure is inherited all the way through. So Jesus comes as the last Adam to fulfill or to do what Adam could not do. So he came in the likeness of Adam. Do we understand this? So that Jesus, Adam being the federal head, or the, or the one from which everything flows, Christ comes to become the new federal head. So now from him, everything flows. Where our identity is no longer in Adam, our destiny is no longer in Adam, you know, and we can come up with all these other paths. Well, I don't believe I'm a descendant of Adam. Well, keep telling yourself that because, you know, I don't know where you're going to go with that. But, uh, you know, but, uh, so now no longer is our destiny from Adam. Now our destiny is in Christ. Our identity, our hope, our future, everything flows from Jesus. So Jesus became the last Adam, coming to fulfill what Adam failed to do. Why is that important? Well, it's important because we have to understand the fall of man. We have to understand that Jesus... Adam was called to do something, he failed, and in it, an entire, uh, an entire species of people, an entire race of people, us, were lost. Jesus comes to restore Adam, uh, to restore us back to our original position. There's a purpose behind it. And so what happens is, and this is important because you got to get, you got to, if you don't understand this, the bell's not going to go off for you. If you don't understand that we're born in sin, and you don't understand that Christ died for sin, you say, well, Jesus died for sinners, yeah, but why are we sinners? We're sinners. Well, we've all done wrong. Yes, we're, that's, that's true, and we're going to get into that, but there's a problem beyond our, our external actions. We're born with the root of sin, and so Jesus died to deal with the root of our sin. Here's where Adam and Eve, our ancestors, fell. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, Has God said? Has God really said? I want you to understand something from this verse. I want you to understand, first of all, the devil is coming to the woman to test her to see if she knows her Bible. Does she actually know what God said? This is what he's doing. And he's going to use her ignorance or her knowledge. If she knows her Bible, he's probably going to back up. If he, she doesn't know her Bible, he's going to use, which he does, her ignorance against her. 
Did God really say that? Is that what he said? Do you really believe that he said that? Have you even heard that he said that? Didn't God say that? Did he say that? He's testing her to see if she knows what she's talking about. So what the devil does, he, he encroaches in your life to see if you know who you are. Say, oh my gosh, why is this happening to me? God must not love me. No, the enemy is pressing you to see, do you know who you are? Do you know what your rights are? Do you know what your authority is? If you don't, he's going to sit down on your couch and make himself a cup of coffee, and he's going to be there a while. He's going to move in until you understand who you are and that he has no right to invade your space. He has no right. But until we take up our rightful position, the enemy will continue to trespass. And we can go, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And oh, God is looking at you going, I've given you the authority. Use it. That's how it works. We look for God to do something on our behalf. He's already done it, and he's empowered you to do something about it. That's how, that's, this is how this kingdom works. And so he beguiles the woman, and he tries to find out what she knows and what she doesn't know. And the woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of, the, of that tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. This is important in the language. God creates a garden. He said, everything is yours, but this one tree is mine. What is he saying? In everything that you have, you must always have honor for me. Always have honor for me. I give you everything, but you must honor me because I am the source of what you have. So God gives you a gazillion trees, a gazillion gardens, and he says, can you give me one? He gives you six days, and he says, can you give me one? He gives you 100% of income, and he says, can you give me 10? You see the principle? It's an interrelated principle all through. And the idea is to put us in a position where we are honoring him. He gives us the means by which we honor him, and he tests you in relationship to your willingness to honor him. Because in honor flows the blessing. Without honor, there is no blessing. And so God has put them in a position so people go, well, why would God put one tree in a garden? I'm like, really? That's your focus? The one tree? There's like a gazillion trees in that garden, you know, and you're obsessed with the one tree that God said, that's mine. Remember me? Well, why would God tell us I got to come to church on a Sunday? I just think that's really ridiculous. I got to give up a day of the week, come and serve the Lord. How crazy. Really? You can't connect to the one that gives you life. You can't come and let him breathe into you. You can't let him come and tell you who you are. You can't come and receive the very thing that he, the very thing to which you were created for. That's a burden to you. The Bible would say this, consider your ways. You need to re go back and rethink that. You should not eat of it, nor shall you touch it. God never told them they shouldn't touch it, and he never told them they would drop dead. This, the enemy is going to play with her language. And the serpent says to her, you will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, you're going to be like God. So what's going on here? God told Adam, he said, listen, the day you touch this tree, if you violate this boundary, there will, it will cause a separation. This is the language in the Hebrew. It will cause a separation that will lead to your death. So God said to him, when you touch the tree or you violate the boundaries, you're not going to drop dead. He said, when you touch the tree and violate the boundaries, you're going to separate yourself from me, and that ultimately is going to cause your death. What Eve says here is she says, well, God said, because this is where she didn't get it right, well, God said if we touch it or even look at it or think about it, we're going to drop dead. And the devil goes, aha. And so what does the enemy say to her? He says, you will not die as you say. He never told her she wouldn't die. He just said, you're not going to die the way you just said. That's what he said. That's the language in the Hebrew. God tells him this way. You go back, you study the language, and this is what's going on. God says, we will be separated, and you'll die. It will lead to an eventual death. 
Eve doesn't understand that. She thinks we're going to drop dead. The devil goes, oh, you think you're going to drop dead? Well, you won't die, as you say. She's like, oh, okay. And what, he, what she says to him is she says, well, God's keeping something from you. You shouldn't trust him because he really doesn't want you. He knows that you'll be his equal. They were already his equal. God had already given them equal stature. He had already given them the economy of heaven. They were heirs. Everything the father had was already theirs. There was nothing that they needed that wasn't already given to them. And yet the devil said, you don't have enough or you don't have everything. He knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like God. You'll be able to run the universe, man. Nobody will tell you what to do. You'll be your own master, the master of your own fate and the master of your own destiny. Next slide. This is what's called a Han Nefesh. So what we teach in our Bibles is we teach in the scripture that this serpent appeared to Eve and we give it like this little fairy tale thing that some little garden snake wrapped itself around a tree and just started talking to Eve. That's not the case. The Bible uses the word nefesh. It actually uses the word hanefesh. And so what does it mean? God created Adam and Eve into a world that was one with his. Heaven and earth were interacting with each other, if you understand this. Heaven and earth were interacting. How many knows when angels are walking around, heaven and earth are interacting? How many knows when the Father is walking around in the garden and coming down to visit you and talk to you face to face, heaven is interacting? So heaven was interacting. If you understand anything about the Star of David, it's an upside-down triangle and an upright triangle. And what it means is on earth as it is in heaven. It is the union of two worlds. That's what that symbol means. And it all plays back to what God intended from the beginning. And it all plays back into what Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. That has always been the intent. Okay? So what's going on here is Adam and Eve are living in a world where there's lots of supernatural stuff going on. Okay? They're seeing angels probably every day. The, the Father comes down and talks to them. There's lots of crazy things going on. And so this is an Egyptian understanding. This is, goes way back. You've got to go way back into the culture. But they understood an angelic being that came in a serpent form. So they're probably seeing these angels. They're probably seeing all this. And this little thing or something in its likeness comes slithering up to Eve looking like an angel of light. We get the picture. The enemy disguises himself as an angel of light so he can appear as something that he is not more than likely appearing to Eve as an angel of light. She probably looked at it and goes, oh, wow, you're new. Hey, how's, how long you been here? Oh, I've been here a long time. And so he, and he begins a conversation with her. And so she was deceived by a Hanafesh. This is what the scripture says. And so we translate it serpent. It probably had some serpentine effect to it. But more than likely, it wasn't, some, just, it wasn't a talking snake. More than likely. Do we understand this? Okay. You say, well, that, that's not... That, that is not what they taught me on the flannel graph when I was in Sunday school. That, that, just is, that just doesn't, I'm telling you what the Bible says. And so what it does is it puts it more in the context of what the scripture is actually saying. And we can understand the Bible from its supernatural world as it's supposed to be. You understand that? It's, it, was in a, it was a world that interacted with angels. It was a world that interacted with the spirit. You've been restored to interact with his world. That's the point. And so she was not deceived by some weird talking snake. Right? She was deceived by a fallen angel disguising himself in some form. You get this? Yeah? All right. Next slide. So what happens is this is a very, 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 very... Everybody say this. This is really important. This is really important. So we have to understand the four pillars of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the whole plan of God in four words. 
Man was created. Why was he created? That's, there's a whole story behind each one. Man was created. Why was he created? For what purpose? To what end? There was a fall. What happened with the fall? What was lost? What, what was, and then we have redemption. What was, what was the whole point of redemption? Why did Jesus do it? What did he do for us? What did it bring back? And then we have this, uh, this other idea, which is restoration, which is what the Bible would call the renewal of everything. So Adam's sin. The Bible uses two words for sin in the Greek. The New Testament, say this with me. The Old Testament, the Old Testament. is written in Hebrew. The New Testament, New Testament is written in Greek. Okay? We have to understand that. Why is Greek important? Greek's a very specific language. I'm telling you for the most part. Somebody's going to go, well, wait a minute there, Kevin. There's Aramaic in there, too. I start arguing with myself while I'm teaching this. For the most part, the, the entirety of the New Testament is written in Greek. All right? So just go with me on this. And so the, it's written in Greek. And Greek is a very specific language. And the reason God chose Greek is so that we would understand specifically what he's talking about. And in the Greek, there's two words for sin. There's harmatia and there's harmatano. One is a noun and one is a verb. We get this? How many knows nouns and verbs are not the same thing? Can we agree? Right? right? Do I have an English teacher here? Anybody? I mean, that's not my skill set, but you know what I'm saying? Nouns and verbs are not the same thing. So harmatia is a noun. So when Adam sinned, he committed, he, he, something happened. He took upon himself the root of sin. That's the, that is the fatal flaw. What this word harmatia means is it means fatal flaw, fatal error. Adam committed a fatal flaw or a fatal error that caused him to inherit something, that caused an, a root to take place. The Greeks would write about this word harmatia, and they would use it as the word offend. So if we understand what it actually we did, we can understand what it looks like to come back to Jesus. The Bible says all have gone their own way, which is the same idea in Isaiah, which means we've offended God. Well, how have we offended God? The word offend means to push away. That's what Adam did. Adam offended God by saying, I don't need you. He pushed God away. You understand that? That's the idea of like, you'll be, you'll be like God. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil. You don't need God. Adam's like, you're right. I don't need God. Boom, pushed him away. That's why, we, that's why there was a separation. Adam created the separation, offending God by shoving him away. That's what it means to offend. That's why when we come back to Jesus, this is primary, we have to acknowledge him as Lord. Why? In that is our salvation. Because our sin relates to us fallen by saying we're Lord. Adam goes, you're not God, I'm God. You're not God, I can be God. That's what Adam did. And that's what we all do, right? I don't need God. I don't need God. I'm my own God, right? So when you return to Christ, it's the bowing of the knee. You are Lord, Adonai, I am not. That is salvation. Anything apart from that is not salvation. It's the acknowledging of Christ as Lord. Every knee and every, every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow. What? That Jesus Christ is the best friend? No, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, we got to understand what this stuff means, so we understand what that doesn't mean. There's love, there's all kinds of wonderful aspects in that, but we have to understand the idea of lordship and the submission unto his lordship. The Bible goes as far as to say, now that you've committed yourself to Jesus, your life is not your own. So I tell people, when I get, if you get to me personally, and I'm like, oh, are you ready to give your life away? Because if you're not, salvation really doesn't have any meaning. You're really not going to experience it. If you think you're still the master of the universe and Jesus is just some insurance policy for you or he's just going to help you through some circumstances, the gospel's not going to work for you because the gospel is designed to work through lordship. Christ now becomes your federal head. 
Now all of a sudden there's a river that flows in you. The river that's flowing in you now is from the curse of Adam. You come to Christ and now the river that flows in you now is from the blessing of Christ. Totally different worlds. It's a shifting of the world. So he offends. This word also, harmatia, this is important too because you want to understand how God made you. Say this with me. Jesus made me to be heroic. This word harmatia was used when a hero fell. When a hero would fall in Greek literature, they used the word harmatia. When somebody fell from a high place, they would say, he harmatiaed. He fell. The hero has fallen. And so when Adam sinned, the hero fell. When Eve sinned, the heroic generation fell. And it took a hero, Christ himself, to come by himself in order to restore us back to our position to a heroic generation. We are a heroic generation. If you see yourself as anything less in Christ, you're missing it. You're a, her you're a hero. On purpose, with a purpose. You're not junk. You're not garbage. You're not called into this world to occupy space. You're called to kill giants. You're called to be Davids. You're called to be Jeremiah's. You're called to set your face into a generation and speak what he says, regardless of what comes back to you. You're called to go up against things that are impossible for you because your father says you can. This is who we are. This is who we are. This is where the power lies. You want resurrection power? Resurrection power lies when we step into our heroic identity. That's where power flows from. The power source is there. The harmatana was the verb. So this is how Christians sin. We all sin. We have the root of sin. We're born with harmatia. We come to Christ. The root of sin is removed. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You don't need to get saved 50 times. If you've confessed Christ as Lord, you're forgiven. You are. You say, but I still sin, Pastor. Harmatia. You're sinning in a manner that is not the sin of condemnation. The sin of condemnation is in harmatia. That's what condemns man. What condemns man is the offense. Jesus has removed the offense. You are no longer offensive to God. He accepts you right now. There is no more offense. You're clean. You say, but I screwed up this morning. I kicked the cat, and I yelled at the neighbor when I was pulling out of the driveway. <laughs> right? You're forgiven. That's a sin that misaligns. There's a sin that misaligns you with purpose. All of you have confessed Christ. You've confessed Christ. You are in his kingdom, and you have a purpose. You have now aligned yourself with a purpose and a destiny. The harmatano is the verb that relates to choices and actions that take you out of the lane. You understand? When you make a choice and an action that is a sin against what God would have you to do or have you to be, it does not condemn you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8. Okay? You're not condemned, nor will you ever be. Oh, happy day, right? You are free. Thank you, Jesus. I am free. You cannot do anything if you are truly born again to displace yourself from God's love. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? That's what Paul's trying to get across to these Christians in Rome because they're all kind of working off these different, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know, man. I just, I, can I, did I lose my salvation? Do I need to get saved again? Do I need somebody? You know, I, I think I need to get saved. No, you're born again. The sin idea is the verb that's causing you to miss the mark. So our attitudes, our actions, our disobedience does not condemn us, but it will keep you from destiny. That's the key. Will not condemn you, but will keep you from destiny. So what's the point? Well, we need better get rid of the harmatano. We should start making our choices more wisely. We should start lining up with what it is that he says. 
So in Adam, we have our physical nature, our spiritual nature comes from him. In Christ, we have our spiritual nature. So when you come to Jesus, this is what it looks like. So we come to, we come to Jesus, we get our spiritual nature from him. We're born again. And the Bible tells us that he, we eventually will get a physical nature from Christ. So while right now, without Jesus, we have the physical nature of Adam and the spiritual nature of Adam, in Christ, we have the spiritual nature of, of, of him. But eventually, we get his physical nature. You say, is that in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. We do not know what we shall be like, but we know that when he appears, we're going to be just like him. Next slide. Beloved, we are the children of God, and yet has not been revealed what we shall be like, but when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we will know him as he is. First John. Paul goes into it in Corinthians, and he tells them, he said, it's like, and there's like, well, what's this body going to be like? What are we going to be like? He's like, it's like a seed being sown into the ground. Anybody ever seen corn? You know what I'm talking about? Whatever it is we plant down here, corn. I don't know. We'll go with corn. So you put, you put corn in the ground. What comes up out of the ground does not necessarily look like what went into the ground. Do we understand that? It produces what went into the ground, but the stalk and everything like it is not like what went into the ground. This is what Paul's going to argue with them. He's just like, well, what's it going to be like? It's going to be like this. We're going to be, we, we, we die in corruption and we're raised incorruptible. Well, the question is, well, what does it look like to be incorruptible? What does it look like to live in a body, to live in a form that has no corruption in it? Well, we don't know. We have to do that. That's where we, we, we live by faith. It says the spirit of, this is Romans 8, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, just as Christ lived, rose Jesus from the dead, he gives life to your mortal bodies with the same spirit living in you. What's the point of this? Paul is telling us not only are we going to be raised from the dead, he's telling us not only have we been saved through faith, he's telling us that we have something that we've inherited. Everybody say, I have an inheritance in me right now. Right now, you have an inheritance living in you. It's called the spirit of resurrection. The Holy Spirit is who's living in you. And that inheritance is yours right now. We do not have, the Bible actually calls us what kind of power we receive. You shall receive power, Jesus told them. Well, what kind of power? Well, the Bible again tells us. We receive resurrection power. The power that the Christian possesses is the power of the resurrection. It's life in you, life through you. And so what the call of the gospel is, is not only that we understand who we were, what we've lost, but we understand who we presently are now. This is monster huge. This couldn't get any bigger. As it relates to you and your destiny and your time on this planet, you've got to understand this, who you are right now. You are in Christ, the possessor of resurrection power. Well, what does that mean? It means we live like Jesus rose. Jesus rose from the dead to reclaim you, to restore you, and to repurpose you. What does that mean? It means that we begin to understand the things of his world, we begin to understand the things of his spirit, and we find the way to make that known in our world. That is your mission. Understand that? That's not, it's not going away. Jesus isn't going to change his mind. There is no other mission. Your mission is to understand his spirit, understand the things of his world, and to begin to work that out in the world around you. What does that look like? Well, again, that's corporate for a church corporate, and that's individual to the individual Christian. Each one of you have ideas, drives, passions, whatever, that are unique in and of yourself. The church upon itself has a corporate calling, more of a generic calling, and into that generic calling, God takes individuals and makes them more specific. What it looks like in a very simple form is that you live and proclaim the message from your position or your station in life. 
where are you at? Well, I work a job nine to five. Well, how can you bring heaven to that place? Well, I just live in a neighborhood and I just got, you know, nah, nah, nah. well, how can you bring heaven to that place? What is it that you can do that reflects the gospel and reflects the kingdom? What is it? I, I, if you begin to ask the Lord, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that I can do today? How is it that I can, what, what is it that you want from me? How, how can I do this? He's going to show you. He's going to show you. He's, it's, not, it's not a mystery. He's not going to keep it from you. He will show you. We have to respond to who he is and to who we are. And we have to respond to what his purposes are in the world. What are his purposes in the world? I can assure you, God has called you to reach your friends and family. He said, I don't know how. He never told you how. You, you figure out how through relationship. You figure out how through him. You're like, how do I reach, you know, Sister Susie? How do I reach Brother John? I'm quoting a Beatles song. Yeah, how do I reach? <laughs> how do I reach these people? That's the point. The point isn't whether or not you've been called to reach people. Every single person, every single Christian go, well, I just don't feel like I'm called to reach the lost. Again, the Bible says every Christian has the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ through you declaring reconciliation. So through your life, every one of us is called to reach. The how is how we figure it out. How do we do this? this is where, that's how we bring heaven to earth. How do we do this? What is it that Jesus wants what is it that he wants in my workplace? What is it that he wants in my family? How can I operate in power? How can I move beyond myself and become the person that God has called me to be? God's power is not formed in your diminished attitudes. God's power is formed when you understand who you are and who he's called you to be. And you begin to press towards that identity. And guess what? When you press towards that identity, all your ugly is going to come out. All your ugly, all your pride, all your little selfish ambitions, all the junk's going to come out of you because God is moving you towards a mark. And as, he's as you begin to move towards the mark, all of that is going to come out. All that's going to come out. But it's coming out so that he can purify you. It's coming out so that he can deal with you. That's what he's doing, right? I mean, we could put it in the context of marriage. God creates, the, there's a harmony so he puts him in marriage. So in marriage, we're squeezed and pressed, and as the two try to become one, what happens, ladies and gentlemen? All the ugly starts coming out. Well, if I knew you were like this before I married you, I don't think I would have married you. Well, if I knew you were like that, I don't think I would have married you either. That's the point. He's causing it all to come out in order to bring the unity. We have to respond accordingly as he's doing that. Anytime God is bringing something out of you or dealing with you on something, he is never trying to shame you, ever. He's never trying to shame you. He's trying to help you, right? He's, not, he's already taken the shame. There is no shame in love. He's taken it. So this is the point. Did you guys get anything out of this? Yeah? So what was my point? <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> it's important for you as a believer in a world that is, in, in, in Christianity, that has completely lost its way. We, we don't understand the most primary things of our faith. And we just, we just are completely lost it. So it's important to understand that Jesus created something a specific way, that it was lost, and that Jesus came to bring it back. He didn't just come to save you. We have got to get past this notion that Christ only came to save us. And I say that not diminishing the importance of becoming born again. We must be born again. But if that's it, 
right? I mean, that's it? I mean, that's, that's all he hit? No, he call, he's calling you into a future. He's calling you into a destiny. He's calling you into a world-changing lifestyle that's patterned after his life and in the company of others. This is what he's called us to do. This is who he's called us to be. It's, let's, let's just be clear. Say it with me. Following Jesus, it's ugly, it's messy, but in the end, it's good. That's right. Let's say this with me. Following Jesus is about direction. It is never about perfection. It's about the direction that you're heading in. You can fall 20 times, but do you get up and head back in the right direction? You can go off course 20 times, but do you recal does you let the Spirit recalibrate you? That's what the Lord is looking for. He's not looking for your perfection. He's looking for the direction in which your life is tracking. What happens off that is a lot of times we get off track, we make choices, we fall, we do dumb things, and we get into this world of self-condemnation and self-guilt. And then we alienate ourselves from the gospel, which is exactly what the devil wants us to do. That's not what the kingdom calls us to do. It calls us admit it and quit it. Say it with me. Admit it and quit it. That's it. You say, well, that just sounds too sloppy for me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. that saved a wretch like me. <laughs> that's, the, that's why grace is amazing. It's amazing. Because you get the chance to get it right. You get the chance to get forgiveness. You get the chance to go again and again and again and again. All right? He loves you. This I can tell you. He loves you. So know your purpose, Christian. Know who he's called you to be. Ask him questions. What does this mean to me, Lord? What do you want from me? How can I be, bring heaven into my home? How can I bring heaven into my neighborhood, into my workplace? How can I do this? And just let him talk to you. Let me bless you. Just receive a blessing this morning. Say, Jesus, I want it. Everything you have for me and more. And if my, if my heart is not big enough, then make it bigger because I want it all. Come on. Father, we just thank you for it. Hear the cries of your people. Release your, all that you have for them upon their lives. Draw them into who they are. Break us away from, from the, the, the meaninglessness, God, and break us forward into your kingdom. Bring us forward into the destiny that you want to bring through our lives, that you want to bring through your church, that you want to bring through the world. Lord, we just ask you for more of it. We ask you for more of it. Wherever the bags are, just, we just want to get all the baggage out of our lives. We, wanna, like, we not only want to have a yard sale, we want to just haul it all off to some place and just purge ourselves of anything that's in our lives that is not belonging to you. And we want the fullness of everything that you are. We want to make more room in our lives for more of you. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that. And I speak again life and blessing over your people. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. If you need prayer, we've got prayer over there.